0: You're listening to an ACCA podcast. Good evening and welcome to ACCA. I'm Annabelle Lacroix, the curator for public programs. It's great to see you all tonight um, for this lecture. Uh, This lecture is part of the Uncommon Knowledge series, uh, which focuses on artists and their ongoing interests and what inspires their art and thinking. To begin, I'd like to acknowledge the Boon the traditional owners, sovereign custodians, and ongoing carers of the land on which we are here tonight, um, and I'd like to pay respects to Elders' part and presence, and also acknowledge all First Nation people here uh, this evening, and especially Peter crow and also Hannah Presley, Lisa Wap, and many others here um, tonight, which is really exciting. Um, so briefly, I'd just like to mention that we've um, come to the halfway mark of this annual lecture series. And we do have half-season passes if you'd like to come to our future lectures. Next month, we'll have Joel Stern speaking on eavesdropping. And after that, um, Gabriel De Vitry will talk about activism um, and the Solon Picasso. So we hope to see you again. <laughs> um, before I introduce our speaker, um, I would just like to um, thank Sour Whiskey for the amazing cocktail tonight and also thank a few other partners. Um, I'd like to thank our presenting partner, Abercrombie & Kent, a luxury travel company that offers um, great tours and travel around the world, as well as our event partners, City of Melbourne, MGC, CAPI, um, and our media partners, The Saturday Paper, Triple R, and Boardsheet. So tonight, I have the pleasure to uh, welcome and introduce Peter weppels Crow. Peter um, is a Na- Narigo, queer elder, a visual and performing artist, uh, based here in Melbourne, and is one of the commissioned artists uh, in this exhibition uh, called The Lightness of Spirit is a Measure of Happiness that was curated by Hannah Presley, and celebrates the significance of family, community, and humour in um, contemporary Aboriginal life. And Peter's incredible new work, Now Go Queen, and The Cloak of Queer Visibility, um, that you can, might have seen uh, before in this exhibition and here, um, is a celebration as well as a statement on queer activism and also speaks to the erasure of queer histories in Aboriginal culture. And so tonight, Peter will focus on his history in working in queer health um, and how his intersecting experiences in a, as an Aboriginal uh, queer man gives him a really unique perspective um, on his, uh, and influences his art um, as well as his identity. Um, Peter has been the multiple uh, finalist of the National Aboriginal and Torres Torres, Strait Islander Arts Awards and the Victorian Indigenous Art Award, among many others, other prizes. Um, And you might also know Peter's work um, through the post-punk disco group, The Treatise, as well as other um, collaborative work that Peter has done. So it's a great pleasure and such a privilege to welcome you, um, Peter, and to hear a bit more about your work with the community.
1: Thanks, Annabelle. Um, now I've got nervous as well. Um, I'm in great company presenting at these talks, and I want to thank Akka for um, putting my name up. Um, in a lot of ways, uh, I've been coming into my own since I've hit 50, and I'll talk about the emerging elder, not the elder, so that I, I don't say I'm an elder yet. Um, it's just something that the community just sort of tag on to you as uncle or auntie, and... Um, We'll talk a bit about that. But this is a picture of the cloak and it's in that room there and I'm really proud of this work. It sort of merges a lot of the thinking I've done over a lot of time and on my journey. So tonight's a bit about my personal journey and there there is some trigger warnings around injecting drug use and mental health and trauma. Um, I haven't had an easy road back to Narigo country and we'll talk a bit about that as we go along. But it's an interesting story to be told. You know, we have a lot of stolen people um, I don't consider myself stolen generation. I consider myself displaced, and a lot of us were displaced in the 50s and 60s as well for different reasons. So tonight's a bit about my journey home. I'll break it... I, when I went through this presentation, I just thought, oh, no, it's a bit disjointed, but I talk a bit about queerness and activism, but hopefully it comes through, through the story. And I'm sharing a bit about my life. I've censored it a bit not to re-traumatise myself because there's been some horrendous times in my world, but there's been amazingly good times, and a lot of them have come as I've gotten older. So I say I'm a bit of a late bloomer, and I probably always was going to be. So thanks again um, for Aqua for having me. Thanks for um, Hannah for curating me, and Lisa Warp. But we'll start by doing an Acknowledgement to Country. I just want to um, pay my, start by acknowledging the mighty Bunurong people whose land we meet on today. I want to pay my respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. Um, one of the first people I met here when I moved to Melbourne in 2003 was Boon Wurrung, a Nahwi, Carolyn Briggs. And um, we got on like a house on fire. And she remains an important um, elder to me to this day. She is cheeky as, and I love her very much. I also want to pay respects to the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander LGBTIQA+, elders past, present, and emerging, especially our transgender mob, the brother boys and the sister girls. I want to pay respects to all the people who have gone before me and made it easier for me to be an Aboriginal queer right here, right now. I'm here, I'm queer, and I'm Narigo. It's taken a journey for me to really even say that. I could call call this talk... I should acknowledge the Aboriginal people in the room tonight as well, and I... Some of them are dear friends and colleagues, and I'm a bit nervous presenting to your own mob. It's always the hardest. Um, but it's about time I told some of these stories, and I hope they heal people, And because there's a lot of us. There's more than you think. I could call this talk Spiritual Tales of the gubb and Aboriginal people will get that, because on this journey, my life has taken me to many places. I've been playing, and I love to play, around with the title Emerging Queer Elder, not that I'm an elder, Um, and it's been informing um, my art practice of late. Um, I've also been telling my Narigo story in different media and found myself being called uncle and sometimes auntie by younger people. Uh, I've been parts of intergenerational yarning circles with the cutie poc, the queer trans indigenous people of color mob, and people are appreciating appreciating my insights and my stories. It's been a great time for me, and I feel my ancestors are very close. Um, here's some images of my great-great-grandmother, and that's not me in granny drag. <laughs> but it, I'm the spinning image, and it's a few generations ago, you know, so we haven't changed much, and I'm here today. I don't know if I'm in the embodiment of her or not, but I feel her very close. Um... Her name was Annie Carroll, and she was an Aboriginal midwife on Narigo country um, back in her day. Um, is it a coincidence that my beautiful partner, Ian Kenny, who's not here tonight, is a proud midwife at Sunshine Hospital? I'm not sure, but I've always had a soft spot for nurses and midwives. I love working in healthcare, and especially Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander healthcare. Um, it keeps me grounded and informs my sense of identity and feeds into my practice. The other picture is my country, a heart-shaped beauty that crosses the border between New South Wales and Victoria and takes in the snowy mountains. We are the snow people, and I love that. In the middle is my uncle John um, Casey. He's an elder and my cousin and our knowledge keeper, and it's been really, I don't know, so amazing to meet him, and that's only happened in such a short time, really. He lives in Tumbarumba, or Tumba as we say in Narragu language. And it's the place where, it's something like that, the place where nature roars as the storms roll in from the snowy mountains. Um, But I wasn't always connected to my ancestors. I think, you know, you can see I've got the image of my ancestors. And in 1965, I was adopted out of this area, which a lot of people got adopted out in the 50s and 60s. Um, And I found myself growing up in the Waples family a non-Indigenous family, very working class and living in housing commission, loving all the same, but my earliest memories are ones of not belonging when I looked out my bedroom window and that's, yeah. Now I want to show you some works that I did, these are some of the art I did in the early 1980s I was 17 or 18 I did a series of Times covers I don't know, that's an old newspaper long since gone, and I did them as covers for my HSC art subjects on issues such as Aboriginal incarceration, Aboriginal beauty, tourism, and other social justice issues. Maybe I was ahead of my time, but in reality I was a white kid doing Indigenous art. I had a real love for Indigenous stuff and a strong sense of social justice, really brought on by my mum, Mrs Waples. Anyway, I bombed out in terms of marks and it was very disappointing. Looking back, I can see I was a bit culturally insensitive and borrowed um, ideas from a lot of mobs, but I was young and trying to find myself. Um, I would have using Aboriginal motifs drummed out of me in art school. Uh, I didn't have appear to have the right to do them. Little did um, I know, but I think my ancestors were close when I did these works. Anyway, the early 80s also signified the start of something more pressing than finding my biological connections. It was the start of GRIDS, or Gay-Related Immune Deficiency Syndrome, later to be named AIDS. And as a young gay man, trying to find his way amongst this became a new priority. The painting on your left um, is from around 1990, I think, sort of that time. It's really weird looking back on time and trying to find out where you were all that years ago. Things raced by, and um, it's been interesting to – I've just been in a time where I'm reflecting back on my life and being able to share it. At times, I wasn't able to share this sort of stuff um, for – Lots of different reasons, mainly my own sensitivities, really, I think I'm starting to see as well as a sensitive guy. Anyway, it's from around 1990, and I think it really was about AIDS and mortality. I really struggled to come out in the 80s. I had a lot of internalised homophobia, and I'm not sure... That's another trigger warning. If people have got internalised homophobia, I understand that. Um, As I had few role models, and the hysteria and homophobia whipped up by AIDS was extreme... It's, it was horrible. Just told you you were a, a dirty person, you were wrong, you deserved to die. There was just that message just constantly reinforced. That you were a pufter, there was pufter bashings, so it was a public sport. It was just like, I was a young person, you know, no one deserves that in their world, really. Um, I went back to art school at a mature age of 21. I had worked in the public service due to the fact that my very working class family didn't want me to be an artist. And I'm sure that's a common story. And by the late 80s, I was living uh, as an artist um, in a collective called One More Art Studio. And Liz Johnson, who's a sculptor, knows me from that time and was here at the opening. And it was amazing to reconnect and see the journey I've gone on. And um, she's still making great sculptures. Um, It was in a little uh, suburb of Wollongong called Coniston. Yeah, I was living as an artist. I was really poor as. Um, I was just surviving i'd trained as a teacher, so that was keeping me afloat doing um teaching in high schools, but i didn 't really like it and early on, I wanted to introduce graffiti, and I was really into street art and it just some of the schools weren 't responsive to that and thought it was promoting vandalism in that era and um I just thought my future's not really here, so I sort of I was really stuck, so I sold everything I owned and I left for my coming out parade in San Francisco. (laughs) I don't know, it was cliche, I know. It was pretty early 90s and I'd got to the city and it had been devastated by AIDS, some accounts of half the population of gay men there dying. I really came fully out of the closet on this trip and I stayed in the States for a long time and had many adventures that I'm not going to talk about, but they were pretty fabulous. <laughs> 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 and I became a new person, which was really nice. Some of that uh, internalised hydrophobia I matched it away. Um, I was someone else. I was in another country. I was living in the night. I remember staying in hostels and everyone would be out during the day and I'd be leaving at 11 o'clock at night to go and have fun in the city. Um, and, yeah, it was really good. Um, LAUGHTER I started work, When I returned, I started working at the AIDS Council, and that sort of started my journey into health, and I used my education in that role. And I started as um, a BEATS outreach worker, and I don't know, BEATS are places where gay men meet or men who have sex with men meet to, have, um, to meet up, hook up, have sex. Um, and a lot of them are, have heterosexual partners, um, yeah, it's a very interesting time, and I was there to do education around HIV and AIDS, because people saw that as a way that the gay community would get into the straight community through that, that group of men, so it was one of my favourite jobs, and really, I got to validate a lot of people's lives, um, I don't know, I like that whole aspect of healing, and, um, one-on-one conversations, and, you know, I had to negate, navigate some really tricky situations in toilet blocks, and, homophobic sort of towns um, all the, down the south coast but I was doing stuff in my hometown as well which was really important for me um, I really enjoyed it so I worked there and the middle image is, um, is from a show I did in 1993 at the AIDS Council in Wollongong where I made about 250 individual red dolls that I sold for $2 each to raise money for HIV um, when I was in America, I'd come across some of the indigenous art from Mexico and there was one about them. They used to bury the dead with a clay red dog to keep the spirit warm as dogs have a three degrees higher body temperature than humans. It was a companion um, for the journey to the afterlife life in their culture and I used it as a metaphor for all the people who had died without families because of homophobia due to AIDS and I saw that a lot. People had abandoned their children just over this disease. It was horrible. Um, So I did these 250 dogs. And the image on the right is my uh, collaborative piece called Dingo Spirit in gold um, that I did for Craft a few years ago. So you can see the tie-in and that some of these images don't, um, some of these things just roll on and it's a motif, the dingo, the red dog, it's a... Yeah, I was always fascinated about death, and I'm going to talk a bit about where death triggered things off for me, but I'm not scared of it, and I was raised in quite a spiritual white family and Aboriginal culture. We talk about ghosts and the passing of people and ancestors. So, you know, in some ways, that family gave me some really insights into spiritualness that made me the person I am and maybe better cope with coming back to community. Um, so this is one I made for... In Victoria, and they're available at Craft Victoria. And one of them's got a gold ear. It's sort of, you know, um, it's sort of it looks a bit Egyptian as well, which I like. I like Anubis, the god of the dead, and there's a lot of um, stories and myths about the dogs being the guardians of the next life and the death. So that's why I've been drawn to the dingo and the other dogs in my world. In my world. So I'd made this a few years ago, and it echoes a similar story of the afterlife offerings, protection, and incorporated a curry design on its back. Now, some of this is heavy duty, and on your right is my first partner, Michael. Um, I met Michael when I was living in Wollongong, And he was living with HIV. And I'm not making any moral judgments here, because I try never to judge. But he contracted the virus through injecting heroin. Um, I just think it's really important to the story. I loved him heaps. And it was a rollercoaster of a relationship. Um, He introduced me to to injecting amphetamines. um, And this would lead to an on and off addiction um, and drug taking for the next 20 years of my life. It was a secret thing that I've kept secret for the longest time, Uh, but I'm now fessing up. And in reality, I've always been pretty open, I realize, about um, my on and off drug use. And it's sort of helped me in my peer work um, a lot as well. Michael died in April 1998, back in Canada, after leaving me to make peace with his family. I had moved to Sydney with Michael and he had gone through some of the experimental drug trials for, a, for HIV and AIDS that had left him and other participants with so much psychological damage that they had to stop the trial. And that drug, interferon, would later become a treatment for hepatitis C, um, which, which caused the same sort of effects, um, which made it really hard to get people to treat their hepatitis C. But we, thankfully now, there's so amazing treatments. Um... So in the mid-90s, I said late in, in the late 90s, but I'm thinking this is about the mid-90s. I started working in the Aboriginal community in the block in Redfern at a needle exchange program. But I was in a shooting gallery, a place where people injected in a laneway. Um, it was nicknamed the Lane of Shame by the Telegraph newspaper. I worked there for two years and we gave people injecting advice. And there's some of the images on the left. You know, people lived in this community. Um, there were empty buildings. There's a box of fits down there in a, a fit bin. And one of that poster is a poster I designed. So I talked about a bit about, we tried to, um, I worked there for two years and we gave people injecting advice and we resuscitated people who overdosed and we kept them alive till the ambulance got there. Um, It was full-on and like working in a hostile space full of racism, mostly from the cops of the time. I had cops um, hold guns on me. I had, I don't know, I just saw so much. I witnessed a whole lot of stuff that I wouldn't want people to see. But it gave me great insights into how the mob injected the practicalities and led to innovative health um, promotion campaigns. Most NSPs gave people fits, and that was the last we saw of them. Um, It was at this time that my Aboriginality came into focus. Um, Even through my birth, mum had told me at an earlier meeting, on our first meeting, that we were strong due to our black blood. I just didn't know what to do with it. I was in a really interesting space. Um, I was raised white, and I now found myself in a community sliding out of view on a heroin haze and wondered how I fitted into all this. Um... My strategy for understanding my Narigo heritage was to work in the Aboriginal communities and just to watch and learn from mob around me. I was selected for the New South Wales Public Health Officer program, and I would move to Newcastle and work on Aboriginal health programs all over New South Wales. I still wasn't very comfortable with my identity. I wasn't grounded. But I kept on learning and listening and trying to find my way home. So one of the posters there, what we noticed When you inject, people get a swab. They swab the site like you do in hospital um, and then inject into that to avoid getting, you know, a dirty hit. But what was happening in the block at that time were people were just injecting and then using the swabs after it. So if you use a swab after it, it promotes bleeding. And what we were trying to do was prevent contaminated equipment getting um, used by different community members and preventing... What we really tried to do is prevent hep C and HIV... We were really worried about it, and I'll talk a bit about it later in the presentation. So that poster just said, you know, it was an easy, simple poster that tried to change that behavior. So to get people to use the swab first and then to use the cotton wool after it. So um, I think it was really successful. And where else would you be able to do a program like that? Was HAL working there? And we were seen as the scum of the health system, really. Um, It left me really traumatized and, but a community lived there, and they lived amongst all this stuff. And thankfully I've gone back and made peace with that place, you know. Um, at the time, um, I was just... My head was just spinning with the amount of... That this was all happening within the skyline of Sydney, you know. This sort of environment. People were using our contaminated waste bags as bins, and we were talking to people about that stuff. I, I never felt super unsafe unless all of a sudden cocaine came into the community, a really expensive drug, and people would shoot that up um, and it would send them quite crazy and you'd you'd just be really unpredictable. So you had to be really careful that you wouldn't get a needle stick injury. Um, We used to wash shit out of there every morning and um, uh, yeah, I don't know how I ended up in that place, but there was something about my life, my own injecting, and uh, I don't know, the ancestors took me there for some reason. And we did some good. On the other wall, from the graffiti, we made it a big mural about all your rights and how you could um, talk to the cops (coughs) and what your rights were when you were going to get arrested. But it was just, yeah, full on time. But I just wanted to make a point of that. You know, it's probably really informed a lot of the things I've done and thought about. And that's my dear Michael. Lovely. You know, I've lost him, but I inherited... His Canadian family, so yeah, I'm still really in contact with them, and I've got a League of Nations for years and nieces over there. So it's fantastic, a League of Indigenous people. It's amazing. Um, Michael wasn't Indigenous, and but his sisters has got Indigenous children, so it's pretty cool. So now I have a little stop. Maybe that's a good time for a stop, and just a bit of a reference to what I like about in art influences. My favourite, One of my favourite artists is the gay artist David Von Arovich. Um, That's his on the right. Um, He was a gay activist artist living with HIV. He was from New York. I found a magazine in Wollongong, like a million miles away from New York in the 90s, and I just, like, fell in love. Um, I really like artists and how they live outside their life, and he was a poet, a painter, an activist, and died when I was in New York so that yeah has I don't know just always loved his work and worth looking up amazing writer and can com- and write some amazing things about the time I really liked um uh, some of my heroes were Tracy Moffat and Gordon Bennett like I feel like I'm probably old enough to be around their time but you know life had dealt me another hand you know so I had to deal with what I had to deal with and I was, you know, Wollongong wasn't the art centre, so I was just struggling away there. And, but I just really liked that they rebelled against the Aboriginal label because at times in my art I've really rebelled against that and um, your art's not Aboriginal enough or, you know, I thought it would be more native.
2: Uh,
1: uh, <laughs> I don't know, just things that, you know, we're artists first. And this is Kyra sing, you know, part of the LGBTIQ Aboriginal community, and a beautiful shirt design that really has helped me inspire my cloak. But it's just something that's come out of the LGBTI Aboriginal community, you know. I really admire them very much, and I'm glad to be part of it. And now we'll just talk a bit about... This is not my area of expertise, and I'm an insider to the Aboriginal community because I'm Narago but I'm a bit on the outside because I'm queer and I've realised reflecting on my injecting that that made me even more marginalised. So no wonder I love marginalised people and um, positions in society. Uh, I'm inside the queer community because I'm queer but I'm on the outside of that because I'm Narago. So you have this vexed position. There's a real hierarchy in the queer community with really white gay males at the top and everyone else falling into their level of acceptance due to their sexuality, gender diversity, ability, race, and cultural needs. A lot of um, queer services are very white and Aboriginal people feel excluded from them. Um, In our Aboriginal community, due to colonization, the advent of Christianity, queerness can be excluded and is marginalized. Um, It's not just my thinking, but scholars like um, Queer Aboriginal artists like Todd Fernandez, Beck Johnson from Indigiles, Kyle Clancy, Troy Anthony Baylis, the list can go on, that remind us that our queer histories before colonisation were not written by us and we were sort of erased. The colonisers came with their heterosexuality, their Christian and religious morals and they just relate, erased our queer lives. It would be nice to have more evidence of our existence before Captain Cook. And I'm sure things will be uncovered as we search harder for our collective past. But until then, we know other indigenous cultures have documented sexuality and gender diversity, the two spirit people of Canada and the USA, the Fafafinis of the Pacific and the Hindra of India. We are here now in the culture and we need to make our own history. Here is, um, and we need to make our own history. That's what, and that's what I'm trying to do with the cloak, you know, just, just make wear our mesh culture and queerness together and say we belong and we're not going away. Because um, there's some thoughts, you know, Anthony Mundine, oh, I shouldn't mention his name, he's gonna haunt me. But, but, but just some of the narratives that can run in the community can be really negative towards us, that we don't belong, that we're a white disease. these things we have to overcome. Um, You know, it's fine. They don't know the history either, neither do we, um, but we're here now and we're making history, you know, and that's what we're doing. Um, Here is the meaning of the queer flag, um, which really, I'm not sure a lot of people know, but they're pretty beautiful meanings, actually. Life, healing, sun, sunlight, nature, harmony, spirit. And I was tempted to use the Philadelphia flag of inclusion in my cloak, with added a black and brown stripe, um, because I felt the rainbow didn't reflect them. But I had a few thoughts about it and didn't reflect everyone in the colours of the rainbow. I think that when you look at that meaning, it does. It, it's not about our cultural needs or anything like that, it's about these spiritual things. But anyway, I showed a couple of versions that have been appearing. There's been um, inclusion and diversity are big discussions in the queer community and part of work. Here is the meaning of the gay gay flag, which is so beautiful, but parts of the community don't feel like the flag represents them, including Aboriginal people sometimes, and black and brown people. So here are a couple of new versions of the flag that have been um, appearing of late that include transgender people with the pink and the blue stripes, and people of colour with the black and the brown stripes. So that's a, a debate that rages on. That's all I really wanted to say about that, and I'll try to get back to my life, and I'm not, I'm not sure how I'm going for time, Annabelle. All right. So I um, moved... I have to say, in putting this presentation together, I see death has facilitated great changes in my identity. My mum, Peggy Waples, died in the 80s. Um, And that opened up space for me to track down my biological connections. And then Michael's death, as I talked, and our sad breakup in the 1980s opened up a space um, for me to focus on Aboriginal identity. Both times, I was a primary carer for these people. Nothing came easy for me, and I was in the end of 2003, I moved to Melbourne after a couple of years in Bunjalung country in northern New South Wales. Um, I'd gone up there for a part of the public health officer training program, and a Bunjalung woman had helped me find the confidence to identify my aboriginalness in the block and, and beyond. So it really was great that I was, and I was really proud to be able to work and live there with the Bunjalung people. Um, Love was a bit elusive and a bit transient. Um, That's all I'll say about the Northern Rivers. And, you know, the story is it's a place of healing. Um, People come there a lot and people, yeah, and if you stay a long time there, can you break up? And there's all this story. There's always this stuff going down in the group. But I was living in... I guess I was living in Suffolk Park. I was working in all the communities by day and then playing tennis with the gay group at night. And I felt quite schizophrenic, you know, like all these worlds and sometimes they collide and other times they wouldn't so, I don't know um, it wasn't very satisfying I guess, I, I just um, I did do my first serious show up there in Byron Bay after many years of just doing art in my spare time and it was a really big success so, that was amazing anyway, back in Melbourne when I came here in 2003, I worked for VATCHO. And this is a map of VATCHO and all the services. So Victorian Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organization. And we say atchos in Victoria, and they could be, in other states, Aboriginal medical services. But here, they're like cooperative. So they offer more than health. So we call them um, community controlled. Um, you have to have a health component to be part of VATCHO, a membership. But they offer youth services, housing stock, Just a more one-stop shop um, than an Aboriginal medical service. The only one that really operates like that is the Victorian Aboriginal Health Service in um, Fitzroy and Preston. Anyway, I was back in Melbourne. I was working at VATCHO, and I wanted to be back in the Aboriginal community sector and bring the skills I had learned from the Public Health Officer Program. Um, I really love community stuff. And although the program was really grooming you to be a senior public health person in the mainstream, my first love for being around community shone through. I worked on many projects for that show and had a few different roles, but ended up the team leading sexual health and bloodborne viruses. Um, I got to travel to the community health centres all over Victoria. Um, I knew the city centre really well, and I knew the country of Victoria, but I didn't know much in between. Um, I just travelled a really lot. Uh, and part of that was the strategy to be visible because sexual health is not very visible. You know, it's down the priority list of Aboriginal health needs. So there was only three of us working on the team when I was there for the whole state to cover all these services and to keep it on the agenda. And when I, as I trained at Vacher, we talked about Aboriginal health workers. So they were supposed to be the linchpin of the services, and they were the communicators between the community and the medical staff and nurses. But unfortunately, it hasn't always played out like that. Um, and Vacho used to train them in uh, triaging and stuff like that. So there should be a greater role for them. But unfortunately, in my time, it hasn't evolved, and it's always evolving. So Vacho staff might do that, but I don't work for them anymore, so I can reflect back on it. Um, but what we did do is go out to the services and talk about STIs, sexually transmitted infections, and bloodborne viruses. Make videos, do resources, um, anything to keep it on the agenda, and trying to reach out to the communities that they serviced. So these, all these services, um, formed around their local communities. So it's pretty well um, across the whole state, and Victoria has quite a few. Um, And during this time in the project, it just increased my cultural knowledge and made me stronger as an Aboriginal person. But there were some not-so-good sides as well. Um, Again, you know, I don't know if I'm really sensitive, uh, but I'm going to talk a bit about lateral violence. And maybe violence is the wrong word. That's what the debate I've been having recently. Is violence the right word for what happens in Aboriginal communities? but it's a shitload of bullying, actually, takes place. And, you know, it could be feel like I'm airing dirty laundry, but someone's got to goddamn do it because this is a product of colonisation and it makes people who are stolen, taken, much harder. I've been called every goddamn thing under the sun and it hurts your soul for other Aboriginal people to call you the nastiest things. So I just hope... I went out and talked all about lateral violence when I'd seen it. All right, I'm jumping ahead. I was. This is just saying from 213. It's a work that pokes fun at everyone, including the Aboriginal community. And sometimes, I want the cloak and some of these works to reflect back to the community, not just to the white art world. Um, and have a, you know, they're being quite responsive. Not not all art does that. It talks to the white art world, but I'm interested in how we can improve the community and community development. Not improve. That's the wrong word. Just make it better, make it easier, make it heal it. You know, I'm into healing. So, and it includes my Aboriginal community and the lateral violence. Can everyone pick one of the lateral violence terms in that one? That's not a quiz, huh? Coconut. Um, I guess that's mainly the main one in there. Um, most of them are just poking fun and a lot of my queer identity and blacks in black corner and dandy boy <laughs> anyway coconut means you're black on the outside and white in the middle um, it's an old term but it, same with gubborigine that I used early on that's why I used that term because I was trying to poke fun at it but I've been called you know that as well and we get hear that all the time and this is a manifestation of colonisation let's make that clear This is not the community being violent. This is because we're oppressed. This is because we can't take it out on the government. We can't take our oppression out on that. So we get cheap shots on each other. And it makes working in the community and living in the community extremely difficult. And I'm just bringing it to your attention. You can find a video from Canada called Lateral Violence in Aboriginal Communities and watch that if you want to, and you see how it plays out in another Aboriginal community. So this is a global phenomenon about oppression and oppressed groups. So it's nothing new. It's just um, I'd experienced a lot of lateral violence on my journey to date, but I didn't hear about this name until I went to a Healing Our Spirit Conference, which is one is on this later in Sydney this year. So if people want to check in the Aboriginal mob here, that's on in Sydney, and that will be another gathering of um, Indigenous global gang... Um, There was a presentation on lateral violence. They sort of called it lateral violence in the Cree community, and bang, I just went, oh, um, this has all made sense. My journey back to Narraga country and my identity had been made all the harder by this form of bullying or um, violence, and sometimes you just shut down. Um, It's used to describe the violence and bullying by marginalised peoples, particularly developed nations amongst themselves, nations particularly middle and high income nations with relatively recent colonial oppressor histories have marginalised minorities who are stressed by this. Um, and it comes in many forms, bullying, cutting people out. Um, and I don't like talking about it. It feels really, you know, I, I, but I've gone across the state talking to Aboriginal people about that. After I heard that, I took that film. I thought the film won't relate to us as much and... But people will see that this is a global event, you know. This is something we really have to address and start... I think all we could do is be self-aware that we're doing it because even... I'm sure I've done it as well, you know. Like, it's so... It's horrible. It just happens all the time. But I just think about people coming back to the community and wanting their place amongst the mob and how much harder that must be for them, how hard it was at some points for me. Anyway, I presented to a... a Um, I took the film across Victoria, hoping by naming it, it could address it. Everyone I presented to had experienced forms of lateral oppression, which was really sad, and that was a lot of people. Everyone had a story, but I think the workshops did some good, and there was a lot of talk about the issue in the community. Other people, like Richard Franklin, took up the issue, and discussions were being had everywhere. It's a global phenomenon, really, and I was glad to have um, self-awareness. The classic coconut, black on the outside, white in the middle is used in this art series. I've always had been someone to question things, maybe because I've come from the outside of the community into it um, and not take them at face value. Uh, I feel like lateral violence as we all fight against each other is so destructive and has one point led to me breaking down, which is why I'm so passionate about it. It led to a psychosis. Um, It happened in WA. I got anyway. I'm not going there to re-traumatise myself, but it led to me having a really bad experience. So I'm really passionate about it, and it really sucks. It really sucked that having that mental health. Um, This work throws up so many questions and opinions, and I really gained a lot of attention for it. Um, And I continue to show it. It's showing at Benalla. You know, I add to it as well. I'm going to call this next slide Recovery. I left Vacho at the start of 215, not that long ago, really. I was a mess, um, and I was really burnt out from all the subtle trauma of the community, which can get to you. People share a lot of stories with you, and you know, in that is all this trauma and intergenerational trauma. It's, it sucks that we have to have that in our communities, but that's part of colonisation as well I was back on drugs to cope and overdoing it this is when I was asked to call, form the, join the treatise it started as a bit of a joke wearing a monkey mask for Anna and Karen but developed into a full on performance experience that really helped me we're in a hiatus at the moment our last performance was last year and we come together, hopefully we'll come together again but it's sort of a random thing I just think performance art really helped me I don't know, it just gave me some confidence. And, you know, when you say uh, performance art, that's what I'm talking about. I'm with my titters, and we're, I don't know how you describe it, post-punk or just opening up space for Aboriginal people to inhabit away from things. The monkey mouse became a poignant time when um, Adam Goods was being called an ape. And so then I took it on as the persona of this ape can talk back, and this ape is saying, fuck off, you know, like, yeah. And took it on as that, the seeing, the way we are seen as primitives. Um, Yeah, that monkey embodied all that stuff and, like, united, and ignited my rage and you could get it out in the performance. So, yeah, I think it really healed me. And, I don't know, will will I finish up pretty soon? Yeah, okay, I'll just finish. I was going to go through some AIDS stuff, but I could... Probably race through it. My Narago cousins contacted me through Facebook, <coughs> um, and I was so glad I was using Narigo all the time. I really wasn't satisfied with what I was getting from my immediate biological family. Um, and I, I don't want to go there, I don't know. There's things, stories about, you know, there's so much fear in the past about your kids being taken off you and people hiding your identity. Well, my mob had just suppressed it and um, it was funny being outside that and then my cousins contacted me, which were amazing, and they were really proud and they connected me to Uncle John and he just opened a world to me with keys. Um, The last few years as I've gone on have been the best ever and settled my restless spirit. I've recovered myself from pain and loss to find connection. I just kept hanging on for most of my life, but now I'm grounded, strong, proud, and ready for the rest of my life. And I could end there, (laughs) or we could just have a quick look at some AIDS Council stuff, because this is what I work in now, and I shouldn't say it's AIDS Council, it's called Thorn and Harbour Health now. Um, We've moved away from... Um, the AIDS Council name because it doesn't reflect what we do anymore in terms of the LGBT health. But just a l- quick update. I just wanted to show you some of the why I continue to work in this area. I think the point here is hepatitis C infection in Victoria is 16 times higher than the non-Aboriginal population. You know that's outrageous, and we're higher in every other infection. HIV. Victoria is bucking the trend with one case in 2017. Um, but overall, nationally, it's increased 33% HIV, um, and in the mainstream, it's dropped by 22%. So we're on the increase, and mainstream's on the decrease. Um, there's the 1990 target, which is the UNAIDS global target to end HIV by 2020, where 90% of people living with HIV will know their status, so that means we've got to get people treated and uh, tested and then on to treatment. Um, 90% of people, and we've got to break down some of the stigma around this disease, 90% of the people with HIV will receive sustained um, antiretroviral therapy. So that sustained means you get a really low viral load and then you can't pass it on anymore if you've had the viral load for six months. That's the U equals U campaign. Um, it's getting some of that message out, and 90% will achieve um, an undetectable viral load. So that's the plan to try to get HIV down. We're doing okay in the mainstream community with 89%, 86%, and 94%, but in the Aboriginal community, we're only at 80%, 90%, and 76%. So there's this gap that we have to do. We have to keep working on. This is the, the way people have contracted HIV exposure categories. Um, this is non-indigenous on the right, and you see the biggest category is male-to-male sex, and in the Aboriginal community, that's half the community. Um, the other highlight is heterosexual is much bigger in the Aboriginal community. Male-to-male sex... I think the injecting drug use is the thing we have to watch here, that the in the... Um, um, it's only 3% in the non-Indigenous population. We've really worked really hard with needle exchange programs to keep that really low. But in the Aboriginal community, it's 34% of the diagnosis. So you can see the HIV epidemic is looking very different in the Aboriginal community, and we need different strategies, and we need more resources to be able to, f- to fund that. This is the rate of HIV. You can see that the top line is the Aboriginal community... Whereas the non-Aboriginal community is going down, we're going up. Victoria is bucking that trend, but my eye is on the prize, and that's for everyone, you know, for us to work really hard. These are all the new things that we can promote. I don't know if I've got time to go through them, but I'll have a crack. PrEP is pre-exposure prophylaxis, a pill you take once a time a day if you're going to be at risk of having unprotected anal sex and it will prevent you getting HIV. That's where we're up to. So I've come back into HIV after a long time with all these new treatments. Opioids, you know, like um, methadone, stops people injecting, which cuts down their risk. PrEP is something, if you get exposed to HIV, you can get it from your local hospital. Um, It'll cut down your risk of it developing into an infection. And TASP is treatment as prevention, which means if you get someone on... who's HIV positive, onto treatment, um, and they can sustain a six-month viral load. They won't be able to pass that on. So combination with that. There's NSPs, needle and syringe programs, which I've worked in a lot, trying to prevent um, outbreaks and hepatitis C, and there's amazing new treatments for hepatitis C now. So it's all good news that I've come back into detox and rehabs, a lot of that education and health literacy, going out to present to your community, community empowerment, using key role models, videos, condoms are still a man's stay, and making sure that if people want to test, they can get a test. And we have rapid testing now at Thorn Harbour Health down in Rose Street in Fitzroy, where you can just walk in the street and know your HIV status in about half an hour. So these, all these things have come to combine to try to end HIV by 2020. Ooh. All right. It's just things we need to do. So there's a major um, STI outbreak in the northern part of Australia. Syphilis is out of control in the Aboriginal community. And your chance of having chlamydia, gonorrhea and syphilis increases your risk of being ha- getting HIV. It's shocking, but um, it started in North Queensland and it's spread across the top of Australia. And because of our... Um, Yeah, we mix around the different states, anything can happen. So we have to stay on um, watch for that. So they're just a contributing risk factor for HIV infection. I just wanted to show you the last slide. This is what, this is a story from Canada, and this is why we have always worried about HIV in the Aboriginal community. Um, Aboriginal and First Nations, Métis and Inuits make up 3% of the population but they make up 20% of the HIV diagnosis. Um, And this is a graph that shows how HIV can, how fast it can rise. Um, And the one on the left shows that it's clearly been transmitted by injecting drug use. Um, And we've had an outbreak of HIV here in Victoria, which is Sort of under control now, but it happened among the Aboriginal injecting drug users. So um, we have to watch that mode of transmission as well. So this is Canada, and you can see how it's escalated HIV, all due to injecting drug users. Just a summary: HIV is increasing in the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community. Testing people without shame and stigma, doing so in a private and confidential manner, is really super important. You need to test um, someone for HIV if they've been diagnosed with another sexually transmitted infection. And you need to screen, ask questions about whether they're men who have sex with men activity, injecting drug use history. And it's also really important um, to testing to antenatal patients as well. Um, If you know anyone in your family or know people in the community who are injecting drugs, or who are MSM encouraging them to get tested regularly for HIV. Uh, this is from James Ward. If we don't stop or get on top of HIV, it will rapidly escalate. It's all our responsibility to stop it. And that's the theme of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander HIV Awareness Week, which runs um, late November to 1st of December. Um, you and me can stop HIV. And yeah, I should have worn that t-shirt tonight. <laughs> But I think that'll leave it. I just would like to thank everyone for having me here tonight and acknowledge all the people who have contributed to making of this presentation. And yeah, I'm feeling like a Narago queen in that shot. And so <laughs> thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Peter. It's really fantastic. Um, and I'm really happy that you accepted your, this invitation and my heart feels really tight from uh, knowing how much it takes for you to, to you know, share your life story and, and um, present to us tonight. So um, really, thank you. Um, I'd like to open to the floor uh, if anyone would like to ask some, some questions um, to follow up uh, to Peter.
1: No, hello.
2: Just going to jump right in there. Um, So, in the statistics you presented, um, I know you lived through the um, heavy socialisation of the health system, and now we are seeing funding being pulled away from remote and regional Indigenous communities, um, and especially in the areas... That you mentioned as risk factors, um, I guess I just wanted to My know it how. Sucks.
1: <laughs> no. no, you say.
2: Um, I just wanted to know how much. How afraid are you that this thing, that we're seeing this increase in, what is essentially a preventable epidemic? <laughs> is going to be happening in Victoria with our recent funding policies?
1: We are lucky in Victoria. We haven't had the um, syphilis outbreak that they have had. Again, that was nearly an eradicated disease, and now it's rife again, and it's an epidemic in our mob in the northern parts of Australia. Um, Some good things in Victoria is that LGBTIQA Aboriginal people are now a priority group in two strategies. Um, but I don't like always tying my sexuality to a disease, which has always seemed to... That's the way we've gotten funded in the past, and we have to celebrate ourselves. Um, I'm not sure. Yeah, I, could, I just think... That we've lost all the... The Two Spirit Program did what I did in Queensland. That's gone. That government got rid of it. I think, you know, there's, there, and our services aren't coping getting people tested. So I'm not sure what the future holds, actually. I think it's a bit doom and gloom. But Victoria's bucking the trend for the moment, but that's just for the moment, you know, as this um, epidemic spreads. And there's, it's just seen as a low priority, and it's often covered in, you know, shame, like I've talked about. I think, you know, the title of my story could be overcoming shame too, you know, shame about sexual health, our sexual bits, our sexuality, injecting drug use, they're all things that we need to talk about that we never do as a people, not just Aboriginal people, but in general. We push it away. Uh, it's someone else's problem. Um, I think we've been out of mind, out of sight as a community. You know, I'm, I had a meeting with Vatre the other day, and they're still saying that it's really under-resourced, and there's not enough doctors to service our people, you know? So, I don't know, you know? I... I burnt out of there because of that sort of stuff, Hannah, you know, and as a young person, I think, you know, you have to take up the mantle and fight hard for the groups that are oppressed and at risk, yeah, I don't know. My energy's low, so I'm just holding on. I'm enjoying being back in it, I must admit, but from the community control sector, I'm not sure the future of that either, you know, so. what, (laughs) What are your thoughts on it?
0: Do we have another... It's a big one to comment on. Did you want to comment on that? Well, it was really beautiful to um, hear you, Peter, and... Oh, sorry, do we have another question?
2: Hi, I'm just really interested in NSP. It's like needle, syringe, sort of safety, shooting up, like... and like, safe places for that, and I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to, like, how significant that is to, like, I'm interested in how significant that is to, for people to, like, be able to deal with addiction and, like, um...
1: I think they're really important. I think NSPs, needle and syringe programs, are seen, when I worked in them, they were, you were seen as the scum of the health system, you know, that you're helping junkies. Let's get real about it. This term junkie, we've got to start saying that and claiming it, because that's how people treat them, that then, you know, drug users aren't worth, I think their their lives aren't worth much. You know, no one starts out, as a young person says, I'm going to end up addicted to a drug. You know, no one makes that their career goal. You know, let's get real. But what Needle and Stringe did, people would come in, and over time you'd build up a relationship with them, which, and then you'd be able to talk more about the issues and heal them, get them into other services when they're ready to do that. You know, I worked for foot patrol as well here in Melbourne on the street. And um, that's what that role was. It's a really important role to encourage people who might never have act any, because of their injecting, their track marks or whatever, their shame might never have um, been to any health service whatsoever. So I think you just, the workers really build rapport and they're really important spaces. And now we've got an injecting centre which... In Sydney, there's been no overdoses from that injecting centre and it's changed the face of King's Cross, so hopefully it changes the face of Richmond as well. And there'll be less injecting equipment. That's what people fear, that they're going to step on a needle. And the risks of you contracting stuff through that are really low, almost negligible. So um, people have that fear. They're not pretty syringes. It's it's because it's illegal, it's undercover, yeah, so... I think it's a really important role, and I'm glad for all those programs. And we've got a drug user, Harm Reduction Victoria, which is a drug user organisation. So they promote... They're all ex- or current drug users. So they're they're promoting amongst their communities about getting access to clean equipment as well. Because that's often the problem. People are hanging out for a shot, and so they just share equipment without thinking about it. And then you don't have the knowledge that your blood might be carrying a virus, you know, and just with hep C, you only need such a minute amount of it, and it's such a virulent disease, so, yeah, which is why we've seen it escalate amongst the injecting drug users and not HIV, so.
0: Thank you. Um, I would just uh, like to add that for this exhibition, we have a few other public programs, um, and Lisa will be here and other artists will um, uh, do some artist talks, and we have other lectures, so um, we hope you can join us in. Uh, and please uh, help me to thank Peter again for his wonderful lecture. Thank you. You
1: have been listening to an ACCA podcast, recorded by ACCA, the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art in Melbourne. To listen to more from us, subscribe to ACCA on Apple Podcasts or follow ACCA on SoundCloud. To find out more about our exhibitions and programs, visit aka.melbourne and sign up to our mailing list.